0: Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. And I'm joined today in a special three-person show by Jay Carson and Will Miller. Hey, guys, how you doing? Good morning. Good. Doing
1: well. How you guys doing?
0: Uh, You know, I'm I'm getting by here. It's a little earlier. We're doing this to kind of accommodate, well, my schedule, actually. So thank you guys for that. But, you know, one of the things I wanted to mention before we got started is what we've heard from listeners on our host survey, at least part of what we've heard, is that people would like to maybe see more three-person shows. And we're we're kind of experimenting with that format. In fact, starting today, obviously. And if you haven't filled out the host survey, uh, we're trying to get some feedback from you as I put together our 2020 schedule. It would be really helpful. It's a short, simple thing, though there's plenty of space for you to hold forth if you want to hold forth longer. And you can get that survey. You can see the link at the show notes to this show. and We would really appreciate you helping us out with that. So thanks very much. All right, I think we're ready to get right uh, to it, Will. So if you wanna if you wanna lead us off, that would be great.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think obviously the the main story this week, and uh, unfortunately or fortunately, depending on where you fall, what might be the main story for a while still now is the impeachment process, the impeachment developments from the week. Um, and just for some background, obviously it's been a a busy week, and we see things coming more towards the public versus private side. So. Obviously, one thing to look at is the fact that Adam Schiff has scheduled out um, some more public uh, conversations over the next week, including with former top Ukraine diplomat William Taylor, uh, George Kent, who's a career department official. Uh, Marie Ivanovich will be back as former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine next Friday. And again, the big difference here being they're testifying in the public setting instead of behind closed doors. And then obviously, we also saw this week that Gordon Sunderland came out and said that he had a refreshed memory. Um, so all of a sudden his testimony has changed and now it's revised to say that in the absence of any credible explanation for the suspension of aid, I presume that the aid suspension had become linked to the proposed anti-corruption statement. Um, so a big switch there and kind of undermines some of the things that Trump's been saying. And then obviously with uh, Kurt Volker, Sondland, and then also Rick Perry, uh, now referred to I think publicly as the the three amigos uh, re- related to Ukraine, um, we also see some Uh, of his testimony being brought public. And then also we have John Bolton not showing up. We have the whistleblower telling Trump to leave him alone, but at the same time saying he'll answer written questions under oath. Uh, So, again, just kind of a big week with a lot of um, moving parts and pieces, but moving more towards what feels like a formal public process as opposed to happening just behind closed doors. So, Mike, when we look at the week and we look at what the week means for Trump and for Democratic efforts, what do you see happening? What do you think is going on?
0: Well, I mean, you know, also with the release of the uh, number of the transcripts from those closed door hearings and Bolton's attorney saying, hey, I've got some stuff that hasn't come out, but we have to wait for the uh, that court case to decide on whether or not uh, Bolton can be compelled to testify, basically, you know, it it seems to me that the, the narrative that initially we had glimpses of is just solidifying. And that being that there was a a sort of a two-track foreign policy. You had your uh, career State Department folks who were trying to conduct what I guess I would call normal foreign policy. Then you had the Trump political team led by, well, Giuliani and with Perry in there, and certainly Sundland and, and, and a few others who were uh, attempting to bend foreign policy in such a way that it would hurt Donald Trump's political opponent. Now, based on the evidence we see now, I, I think it's sort of well, it's difficult. I think it's strange credulity to just dismiss this, and uh, I don't think you can really make a principled case, at least against an inquiry, not to say to vote to impeach. And the the sort of explanations that we're hearing for this are, are interesting. For instance, Lindsey Graham has suggested that. Donald Trump's foreign policy is just simply too coherent to be incoherent to be corrupt, which, was, which is an interesting uh, defense. No, I'm not corrupt. <laughs> I'm just incompetent. Um, others saying that, well, even if there is a quid pro quo, which at this point it's hard to deny, I think there's nothing wrong with that. Or, you know, the other defense saying that even if there is, it's not an impeachable offense. And then later this week, was I think the most fanciful one that some people are throwing around on the right, saying that, well, you know it's actually Sundland, and Trump didn't know anything about this, and Sundland is this evil genius who is manipulating foreign policy to uh, to Trump's ends without Trump's knowledge. And I don't know that that's gonna get a whole lot of uh, a whole lot of traction, certainly, but again, to me, this is
2: just uh, kind of what I would expect and not at all surprising <laughs> um. You know, my my take on this is that we're still left and the the Sondland um, uh, change testimony uh, sort of uh, plays plays into it Um, as I I, I still don't think that that people are seeing this as uh, a legitimate process. If it's sort of like it's almost like, you know, again, to use the the courtroom comparison, you go and you testify and you're cross-examined. And then you leave the courtroom, and then uh, a couple days later, you say, "Oh yeah, I'm changing my testimony." Um, but now it's it's uh, you're not subject to cross examination, and and again, that testimony isn't really testimony, right? It's it's sort of well, here's my here's my assumption, here's my uh, here's my opinion on something, um, and I think that's we we've seen a whole lot of of that to the extent we've seen anything coming out of these hearings. It's you know we're asking various people. Do you think uh, there was a pre- quid pro quo? Uh, and they could say yes or they could say no. But neither one of those is is evidence. If if you follow me, um, it's not. You know this person said this. This person said that. Uh, and I, I my sense is that that, that plays into uh, uh, Trump's uh, hands as this as this continues.
1: And that seems to be for me a lot of what's going on is from the the Trump angle from the Republican angle it's almost like they recognize that the Democrats, to some degree, are, are on a clock here. Um, the closer and closer this gets to the 2020 election, the the muddier and muddier it makes the waters for everybody involved. So I feel like there's a lot of stall and delay tactics. And again, the throwing out of different ideas, different explanations, different um, potential defenses, if we view it that way, seems to play into that. The other part from this week that really grabbed my attention was the, the leaked story and then Trump's Twitter response on the idea from Thursday that he had asked uh, the attorney general to hold a news conference and basically say that he had broken no laws on this phone call as if it was going to be a be-all, end-all. And there's part of me that wonders if Barr had actually agreed to do that, how that would impact this as well. Would that rally the base even more? Would that be, in some people's eyes, definitive evidence that nothing occurred? Um, or would that just make Democrats even hungrier for blood on the water?
0: Well, my take on all that is essentially the base doesn't need to be rallied because absent Donald Trump on tape or in person saying, yes, I actually told Ukraine that I would, that I wanted Joe Biden investigated and aid would be withheld unless he was invest. that I think would be the only evidence of a quid pro quo that uh, that would be accepted by most of by most of donald trump's base, and i think i don't know jay i get the sense that that's the only that that's the standard that that you're going by though maybe i'm wrong about that
2: well i I mean i i think you need some kind of actual evidence to 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 show that that was the case and solan's revised testimony interestingly um i think he indicated we thought there's a quid pro quo uh but it was a a quid pro quo not for the aid but for a meeting um And I'm wondering, you know, from from the Democrats, does 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 that change uh, is one an impeachable offense and the other not a quid pro quo to hold up aid uh, from uh, that had been appropriated by Congress uh, versus a quid pro quo for essentially a, you know, photo op. Um, Yeah, those would seem to be two different things. And I would I would think if there's a quid pro quo of, look, I'm not going to have a meeting unless you say uh, we're investigating uh, the Biden connection uh i i mean i i don't know that there's there's an impeachable offense in in the the first case uh of holding up aid um again if the ukrainians didn't know the aid was being held up um but if if it's a question of we won't do this you know meeting photo op with you unless you do this i'm i'm not sure what's uh how what where's where's the the crime in that i guess i guess
0: i'm wondering you guys if if you you would argue that this is essentially something that is so inconsequential in your view that it's not that doesn't even arise to the level of something that should be investigated. I, I guess that's where I'm having the trouble. So, Jay, no, I mean, no, I, no way. Let, let me just let me just finish and say that, you know, I think there's, there are two different questions here. And the first question is, is this something that is significant and serious enough with enough potential corroboration that it deserves and that it merits an investigation. That's one question. The second question then is, is it enough that it merits uh, an actual vote to impeach? And it seems to me that the Republican stance, at least in Congress, is that it doesn't even merit an investigation. And that to me, that is incomprehensible to me, given the evidence and the transcripts that we've seen. So so maybe maybe I'm misinterpreting or misunderstanding your, your views on this, but maybe you can clarify that for me.
1: Well, from my end, Mike, and Jay, I'll let you have it in a second. I mean, what gets me on this is I feel like a lot of Democrats have moved to the second before looking at the first. Sure. Um, the idea of an investigation, the investigation Is it worth looking at? Maybe. Um, And to Jay's point, maybe more so if it's about aid, not about just a meeting. Um, But once you make it about impeachment before we've done the first step, especially after, for me, the public perception that the Mueller investigation didn't do what it was supposed to do, or we'd still be talking about that, it just leaves me wondering why did we move right to the extreme of an investigation as opposed to starting by actually just looking at what we know. Sorry, Jeff.
2: Yeah, no, no. I, actually, that was that was a lot of what I was gonna uh, mention, and I, I think the only gloss I put on what Will said is, um, there's investigations and there's impeachment inquiries. Um, this country has seen tons of investigations. We have them all the time. Um, you know, we had investigation over Fast and Furious. We had investigation over Benghazi. There were investigations over uh iran contra all all these things were were investigations and they took a look at it but they weren't they weren't in impeachment inquiries and i think um what will's pointing at is is kind of the, the point is if you start saying um we're going to um uh, investigate uh, or, or call this an impeachment inquiry and look into this uh it's sort of putting the cart before the horse and i, I think most people realize that there, are uh, The Democrats have made up their mind. I mean, these these folks who are conducting the investigation have said, from the day he was elected, he ought to be impeached just on general principles. Uh, it's it's almost like uh, saying like uh, we believe there there uh, may have been a uh, crime committed, um, but you know, are you going to call it a a police investigation or is it a capital uh, you know a murder trial? I mean, what I guess that's that's my sense is. Uh, you can investigate. And then if you find something that says, wow, this really looks like um, uh, it could be a crime. For, for example, the uh, l- let's go with the um, uh, the Clinton parallel. Um, uh, the so, special counsel, I mean, did an investigation that was uh, originally of whitewater and came across this situation of, of facts that indicated that the uh, president had committed perjury. At that point, it was turned over then into an impeachment inquiry. Um, so yeah, I think that's, that's my side. There, there can be investigations and it's, it's one thing to investigate and it's expected that you investigate your opponents. Um, but impeachment's another. And my last, and I I don't want to step on wool's, wool's toes too much, but the other piece of this that I think people are, the the rhetorical question that occurred to me uh, last night was, um, in what scenario, if any, would it be okay to request the Ukrainians to investigate, uh, Hunter Biden? Well, I mean, put that out there. Yeah.
0: Well, I mean, it, number one, it seems to me that you're both talking, you're both making the process argument. And, and I, g- I get that. And certainly I understand that you don't want to talk about the substance or maybe you, I don't know. I shouldn't I shouldn't assume that. But but it seems to me and I guess this is the fun. This is the question I'm trying to, to get an answer to is based on what you have seen from the actual substance. Yes. Forgetting all questions of process, let's put that aside just for now. Based on the substance that you've seen from the testimony, do you feel that what you've heard rises to the level where there should be an investigation?
2: Yes. Yes.
0: Okay. Well. Okay. There's that at least. Okay. I'm glad that we. I'm glad that we agree on that much, sir. Okay. Now ask so. the next question. The next. Well, I mean, the next question, I guess, would be is, do you feel that this is the this is the investigation that we should be having on that? And I know, Jay, you would say no. Well, of course, we couldn't have a special prosecutor because that statute uh, that statute lapsed and you can't. So it's one thing when you have, uh, you know, when who would be doing the investigation, I guess, obviously, the Justice Department wouldn't. Donald Trump's Justice Department would not be doing this investigation. No, 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 but,
2: but, sure, but you could still have, what I'm saying is you could still have a congressional committee or a congressional investigation into something, and then the congressional uh, committee makes a referral to the House Judiciary Committee to begin an impeachment inquiry or something like that.
0: Isn't that what we're doing now? I mean, that sounds like, that sounds like a great description of the process
1: right my now. My concern is now it's guised in impeachment right. proceedings as we opposed to an today. investigation. <laughs>
0: What's, it, but but what's, uh, what's what's wrong with? I mean, it's it's a word. What's wrong with the word?
2: What? <laughs> no. Well, I mean, what's what's wrong with the word is is yeah. uh, it is, is throwing gasoline on on the fire, and it implies that there is a grave offense, an offense that is um, uh, so important that we would overturn an election over it. Um, it's it is. I mean, and this may be an inapt metaphor, but. It's like saying uh, we're going to have a witch hunt. Let's let's say let's say let's say no no no. Let's say it's uh, it's Salem in 1620, and uh, someone says, uh, "Look, there's some weird stuff going on here. Uh, people have been getting sick, and we're we're concerned. Someone in the community should investigate this." Okay, that's an investigation. It, it, or you can say people are getting sick. Something's going on here. That it's, it's uh, we have concerns. There's a witch. <laughs> we need to find. It. We need to find the witch. Well, and I well, think that's sort me- of the second. The second thing you're sort of jumping to the. Uh, <laughs> there must be a witch. We just need to find it.
0: Well, the reason why that that's a bad meta- metaphor is because we actually have a at least a partial rough transcript of what sure. you can make a good argument is the president asking for a favor. I mean, this is not this is not making up evidence this is this is something that the president himself released this is something that's been corroborated and extended by a number of people this is something that the president's personal attorney has said he's made essentially a crusade of his so that's why i think it's a bad metaphor it's a totally inept metaphor because we have a lot and this is evidence of something that is grave and so The idea that it should be something like, a, oh, we're just looking into it, call it it what it is, because if these charges are true, then the president should be impeached and removed. And that's why we have the process. Just calling it impeachment doesn't mean he should be impeached. It means that people should take a fair and impartial look at the evidence. And, you know, I agree with Will. Will and Jay, you've said this before. Absolutely. It's the case that there are. A lot or some Democrats, certainly, who just said, I don't care what we impeach him on. We just need him out of office. And I've said before that that's I I totally disagree with that, but not having the process simply because some people are biased. No, that's that's why we have this process to, to, you know, and so I I. Reject the idea that well, just because some Democrats would would vote to impeach him no matter what, that we should just forget about the process and give the president a pass on this.
1: Well, and I'll say, Mike, my my concern is more it is process based. I mean, like you know, I just said very clearly, I think it should be investigated. What I'm worried about is that this sets a precedent that anything that a president possibly does now starts as an impeachment inquiry, potentially, as opposed to Let's at least flesh out the ideas before we go Amen. that route. I'm worried about what happens after Trump, the first time a president steps on a landmine, and all of a sudden we're stuck in the gridlock of impeachment inquiries when investigations cause enough.
0: Um, well, I, yeah, I, I would that's think that's And, you know, I would think that's not much of a concern in the sense that as long as we have presidents who don't play so incredibly fast and loose and 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 run their foreign policy like uh, like an extent extension of their campaign, well, then that's not going to be a problem. So I guess I have I guess I have a little more faith in the process than you guys do, because I think that these things are happening in part. Sure, because of uh, increased polarization, but in part because Donald Trump is an extreme outlier as a president. He seems to have no he seems to have much less respect. For political institutions, for rule of law, even for basic norms of democracy, than any other president that I can think of, Republican or Democrat, in my in my lifetime, and you know even further back than that. And so, when you have somebody who so consistently seems to flout these norms, these things happen. And so, it's not a you know, that that to me the fundamental problem here is that Donald Trump is is uh, incredibly out of line in so many ways, and he's brought this upon himself.
1: But I think we've seen a history, a recent history of what I would call the politics of retribution. Um, sure. Obama gets in, Republicans go after Obama. Trump gets in, Democrats go after Trump. Let's be honest, after Clinton and the impeachment process, I honestly think Democrats would have went after Bush a lot harder and looked at some of these same ideas if not for 9-11. And I think that changes that one out of the discussion. But in reality, what I'm worried about is that tit for tat, you went after Trump, whoever you put in next, we're going to go after full bore. And if we can call it an impeachment proceeding, it becomes very political versus correct a process that really does need to be based on, you know, a very abstract legality with the way that this is written. But I just worry that we get stuck in an era where the con- the congressional presidential relationship becomes rooted in, if it's not unitary control, then we're going to be talking impeachment.
2: I think yeah. we're as, I as, think as we as we've drifted for to, like the the permanent campaign, right, that started under Clinton, I mean, I think, yeah, you know, what we saying, <laughs> i'm I'm hundred percent of it's it's now it's going to be the permanent impeachment campaign also,
0: well, i I mean, of course, only time will tell on this. I Again, I think I have a lot more faith in the process than you guys do. And maybe you're feeling a little more beleaguered because the president of your party happens to be <laughs> it's happens our turn. to be so oh, much I, to, No, I mean, Mike, I have
2: great faith in the process and, and the process well, is, is
0: I, I don't think to, you do. But I mean, I don't think you do, because if you did, you wouldn't, I don't think you'd be so hung up on this process just being misused, essentially. And, you know, and it seems to me that, and I get what you're saying, you feel that the Democrats have just gone way out of line here. And what I'm saying is that I don't think, I think certainly that's part of the story, but I think a bigger part of the story is Donald Trump is just a unique individual. And I would agree if we have more presidents like Donald Trump, who so incredibly flout all of these norms, that we're going to get more of this. But, you know, it takes two to tango here. And so as long as we don't have a president like Donald Trump, left or right, I don't think this is going to be as much of a problem, though. You know, I hear you guys disagreeing with me yeah, a little one bit on thing, that.
2: Really, really, really super quickly, because this is, a, this is a, a fun discussion with the three of us, um, is that my, my issue is if you're going to have an impeachment inquiry, just like if you're going to have a, a criminal investigation, uh, at some point someone needs to say, uh, here is the crime uh, with which you're being charged. They have to articulate what the charge is, not just he's violating norms, or or because you violated norms, uh, you seem like the kind of guy who would do this. Um, so I, I, that's that's my issue, and I think that goes to when when does an investigation become an impeachment inquiry? And I think it's when you have some articulable. Uh, high crime or misdemeanor that you can say uh, that was was committed. And I I don't I don't see that. I see a let's see what what we can find uh, to call a high crime or misdemeanor. And I'll last I'll throw that my rhetorical question out. People don't have to to answer it, but just think about it. Under what circumstances would it be appropriate to ask a foreign government to invest investigate uh, a U.S. citizen, be that Hunter Biden or anyone else?
0: Well, I, you know, I, I, we talked about this, Jay, you and I last week, and actually a couple of listeners said, Mike, you really. You maybe had too much caffeine or you're going into peanut butter (laughs) pretzel withdrawal, but you were pretty rough, pretty emotional. And I sort of tried to tone that down. This is one of the things that got me a little upset. I think at that point, Jay, you and I were talking, maybe talking past each other a little bit. But here's my sense of that, because I think those are fair questions. You can't just say, well, you're a bad guy generally, so we're going to impeach you. I agree with you on that. And I'm sure, Will, you would you would agree with 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 Jay, (laughs) with me on that as well. So. My take on this is that, uh, is that a high crime and misdemeanor in this case, uh, an imp- or the impeachable offense, if you will, is is be- is essentially asking for dirt or an investigation on a potential campaign rival as a condition of withholding something of value, which would be military aid from the Ukraine. And so now there's nothing, I'm pretty sure there's nothing in the U.S. code that would call that a crime, because of course there's only one person who could commit that act, and that would be the president, and no one's ever passed a law against that. But I would say that that would be if, beyond a reasonable doubt, we could be it could be demonstrated that Donald Trump withheld military aid to Ukraine in exchange for with the expectation that Ukraine would investigate specifically Joe Biden's son, I would say that that would qualify as an impeachable offense. And now I, I was wondering, well, what do you guys think about that? If if you could be if that could be proven to you beyond a reasonable doubt, would you say that would be cause not only to to impeach, but to remove the president from office?
2: Well, uh, let's listen. Let's, um, beyond a reasonable doubt that he has asked for, I'd, I'd say that is certainly grounds to for an impeachment inquiry. At that point, you have articulated something that could be a high crime or misdemeanor. No, that's uh, albeit, why I'm saying beyond yeah. a
0: reasonable doubt. So I'll say yeah. it was not. Not that there was evidence, but it was proven
2: beyond right. reasonable doubt. So we're
0: we're past the point of an investigation. There's an investigation, and there is evidence that
2: convinces you is beyond a reasonable. The question opinion. is, yeah, is this, this is out. that an impeachable offense? Yeah, um, I don't know. Would I would I vote to make that an impeachable offense? Um, I'd I'd have a hard time, and I'll I'll tell you why. Uh, and is, just to be clear, Jay, we're talking yeah. about. Not removing the president
0: from office, but you're saying impeachment, yeah. Right. So you, you, it sounds to, you, sounds to me wow. like you're saying that you don't even think that that would rise to the level of
2: calling for a trial in the Senate, that it's that, it's that sort of inconsequential. Oh, no, I, okay. I, I, would, I think I'd call for a trial in the Senate on that. Yeah.
1: Okay. I, that's how I say, I mean, for me, I, it, and I, I'll be honest with this one, and Mike, you'll appreciate it, I think. If that was a Democrat and this was flipped, I'd absolutely want a trial in the Senate on those grounds. Not a question.
0: And I mean, so taking it to that next level, then, again, if you're in the Senate and you are convinced that beyond a reasonable doubt the president did in fact do this, how? Well, I mean, how? It seems to me that that would be a that would be justification more than enough justification to vote to remove. To me, if a president is using foreign policy and and essentially saying that congressionally approved aid military aid to a foreign country that's fighting, you know, in essence, a war that I'm withholding this to help my personal campaign fortunes. To me, that is uh, not just an impeachable offense, but I would want to see any president, Democrat or Republican removed from that. That to me raises to the level of something that would would call for the removal of a president from office, because if that doesn't, I guess I'm not really sure what would.
1: Well, here's the funny part, Mike. I would normally agree oh, with you, but with how this process has gone, I wouldn't vote to do that no matter what in this case because I think the process has been so dominated by Adam Schiff and his agenda that I would hold that against Democrats and back somebody in that case. Although, if this had been done the way that Jane and I have talked about with do an actual investigation first, find the results of the investigation, use that to actually impeach from the House and then bring to the Senate. If that was followed in a more process-based, non-political way, I'd be all for removal at that point. But the well has already been poisoned on this one for me.
0: So even if you—so let me just be clear. So even if you think that Donald Trump did everything that Democrats are accusing him of doing, you couldn't vote to remove him because you're not you're not a fan of the process?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'd consider—it'd be during okay. nullification. I'd be no— even though in reality i think that probably is something that should get somebody removed.
2: Hmm. Okay. Well and and i think you also when you're voting on impeachment you have to consider more than one it's not just a uh is this did this person commit the crimes is he guilty is it an impeachable offense but there's also sort of a duty to the the country as a whole and, and is a is a you know greater goal going to be served by by doing sure. this.
0: Not that's so reasonable. Yeah. That I yeah. think that's a you know, I think that's a fair point. And I mean and sometimes, talking
2: about setting precedent and so yeah, forth, that sort of
0: thing no and sometimes we can be a little too legalistic, but thinking about the effects on the country, I, I mean I agree with that. I and mean, were I, a, were I a Republican senator at that point i would probably that would play into my calculations of course it can get it can very easily become a rationalization obviously sure. oh i would vote for this but it would tear apart the country or something right. like that you know and, and that that's my concern but uh, but but yeah I, you know i and jay i didn't want to ignore the question that you asked and it may seem like it well, but I, I, it? no no i don't want to <laughs> ignore it because i think it's an important <laughs> you said question. it was rhetorical yeah. Well you know but but I think it's an important question because I believe that there certainly are grounds under which a president can ask a foreign country to investigate you know and in fact I believe there were grounds in the Obama administration when you know Joe Biden and some others said hey you know you should look into this corrupt prosecutor who's not bringing who's not investigating companies like Burisma and so forth and I think that when you do it in an open way through the foreign policy establishment and you don't for instance use your personal attorney and say things like oh talk to Rudy he knows all about Ukraine well then i think that that's that's okay to do because that's legitimate foreign policy trying it. as long as it's the the goals of you know the united states as a whole benefiting that well then of course but if your focus is on well how does this help my campaign and oh, maybe secondarily or in a tertiary way, how does this help American foreign policy? Well then that's that is, you know, questionable, if not just well, the outright two can, The two can
2: certainly coexist. You can certainly have, and, and typically you're it right. good policy you're right. is good politics.
0: They certainly um, you're right. You're right. But that doesn't excuse you running foreign policy through your personal attorney.
2: Yeah, uh, well, certainly i say, because we could do a whole other show on that. But my sure. last thing, because I know we've taken up a whole lot, but this is, I think this has been a really fun discussion. Um, well, the other thing that gives me qualms about this is, is compared to, say, the Clinton and the Nixon um, impeachments and what they were about, is this goes to uh, a president's participation in foreign policy. As opposed to Clinton and Nixon, were purely domestic, uh, uh, you know, crimes that were were alleged against them, and and I think that that troubles me a little bit. And I, I'm not saying that there's a some constitutional line or legal line that says you can't impeach for uh, things that are relating to conduct of foreign policy, um, but it 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 it's a little troubling that you can have an impeachment inquiry launched. Over in an anonymous whistleblower's secondhand report, over something the president said uh, to a foreign leader, um, that that would seem to be really stepping on some executive toes, uh, and and I think just as a a separation of powers issue, that that troubles me a little bit more. Um, that Congress extending and again using, uh, you know, this this sort of thing of oh he was saying this to a foreign leader. Uh, we can impeach him. Um, uh, that's that that I find troubling, and I think no one's really articulated that yet. And it just occurred to me a, a minute ago. So, um, but I just wanted to throw that out there as as reasons of of why I would would not vote to remove. All right.
1: Well, there are other things happening in politics, um, <laughs> much to the dismay of some. Um, but obviously, this week also, when we talk about Trump and the impact impeachment might be having on um, his presidential chances, the Republican Party as a whole. We also had uh, elections, um, probably really three states that um, merit some discussion and some mention. Uh, in Virginia, we see the state house turn blue for the first time in uh, a long time. Uh, in Kentucky, which, Mike, I'm sure you'll have a lot to add, we obviously see Andy Bashir defeat perhaps the most unpopular governor of our time, in Matt Bevin. Uh, and then in Mississippi, despite having what I would consider a fairly strong Democratic challenger for Mississippi. Uh, Jim Hood still loses to Lieutenant Governor Tate Reeves by six points. Um, And for me, I think what's really interesting here is obviously in the case of Virginia, we see trends that have been happening for a while continue um, in the sense of, you know, we see a lot of areas that Democrats flip and they're really those highly educated suburbs, lots of affluence. So we're looking at Nova. We're looking at the greater Richmond area. We're looking at Hampton Roads. Um, in Mississippi, I mean, some will point to the fact and I'll be curious for your take guys on, um, what it means that Trump won Mississippi by 17 or 18 points and Tate Reeves only wins it by, uh, I think six in the end. And then obviously in Kentucky, you know, the Bevin is still tech- I don't think Bevin has formally said he lost yet, but that news should be coming any day. So Jay, what did you take away from the Tuesday night elections? What do they mean for, for those locations? And then what does it mean as a, a barometer for 2020?
2: Um, my, my sense, and, and I, this is my usual answer to those kind of questions, is I'm, I'm always hesitant to read broad trends into off-year, and this is particularly off-year, off-year elections, um, and especially in, in places that are, are very different, you know, locales and different types of races. Um, I, I think Mississippi came down to, look, it's a, it's a red state. Uh, going in, that's very much the presumption. Uh, even if you have a, a, a strong Democratic challenger, it's going to be a tough hill to climb. Uh, you had a good candidate this time, and uh, he, he did well. Um, I don't know that that shows that anything has dramatically changed um, in Mississippi or that it pretends anything for, for Trump. Um, Virginia, I think, is more interesting on a national basis in that uh, this was a vote with Virginia's redrawn districts. Uh, and, uh, that uh, I think is something we have talked about a lot of gerrymandering and so forth. And this was part of Eric Holder's, uh, organization that, uh, as conservatives like to say that, it's, you know, sue, sue till it's blue, uh, sort of, sort of, uh, <laughs> uh, uh you know, uh. sort of litigation. And, and I, you know, I, I, so my, my sense is there's, there's something interesting to look at there. And I think it may be a combination of new districts in Virginia and also, uh Virginia has been trending um more blue uh for the past you know probably two decades right um and it is is now uh northern virginia you could you could very much call swamp central uh so i i think that um uh virginia doesn't it doesn't shock me um and uh you know we'll we'll see and and so again in, in state races um I think it's cuz I I've worked on a lot of state races and it's it's a lot of times it's it's hard to um compare uh to the national barometer. I mean, I've cuz again I've worked on uh in state races, state house races where uh we've had a huge red wave uh sweep the state house uh and yet have the the state go go blue for the presidential candidate that same year. So I, I don't always I don't always think and, and again Trump's a, a different situation cuz he it's sort of, you know, uh, has kind of like this gravity of like a, you know, supermassive black hole and kind of pulls in all sorts of things, you know, into his orbit that wouldn't otherwise uh, be there. But um, uh, I, I don't see a huge bellwether sort of thing, other than to note the continuing trend of of Republicans having trouble in uh, some suburban areas, affluent suburban areas.
0: Yeah, what Jay said. <laughs> I mean, that no, that's exactly it. I mean, you know, it, it, it's, the Kentucky race is is kind of unusual in the sense that, uh, you know, somebody as someone once said that if you're now if you're a Republican in Kentucky, you actually have to try to lose, and and Bevin did that. I mean, he,
1: you <laughs> know, really he, did. Jesus.
0: Yeah, he's a really <laughs> off-putting sort of guy to a lot of core Democratic constituencies. So he not only did things that these constituencies didn't like, primarily the K through 12 teachers. That's always a dangerous group to upset and, you know, labor unions, but he did it in a very pugnacious sort of way that was almost guaranteed to ramp up turnout. And so that that's why I think, you know, it's Kentucky's a little unique in that sense. But, you know, again, it's pretty clear that Trump definitely embraced Bevan and Bevin embraced Trump, obviously. And so that strategy that seems to be what the Trump strategy is going to be going forward right In 2020 is basically put all your chips on increasing turnout for your core supporters, largely in the rural areas. And to me, that's a smart strategy because I can't imagine that there are too many people who are sort of ambivalent about Donald Trump and the idea of Trump trying to convince elements of the electorate to vote for him. That that does seem like a dumb strategy. So I guess the question is, is you know, is, is Trump going to be able to increase rural turnout more than Democrats are able to increase uh, suburban turnout for them? And that's a, that's an open question. Certainly it didn't work for the Trump side in, in Kentucky. And while I'm also Jay reluctant to look, you know, into that too much, it'll be, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out, but that definitely obviously is the, is the trend with suburbs going a little bit more toward, uh, or Democrats, but it also occurs to me that I wonder how much of a Republican thing that is, as opposed to a Trump thing. Because you know, Trump obviously hits a lot of those. I wouldn't call him a white nationalist, but he hits a lot of those sort of white <laughs> male. No, I wouldn't. White that white. I wouldn't male. call you a
2: child molester, but no, you know. <laughs> no,
0: that, no, I mean I wouldn't, because that that's what, and I'm saying that not as some sort of a a swipe. But saying that a lot of people are talking about his white nationalist politics, I wouldn't say that. And that, that's my point is that. But my point is that he strikes a chord with a lot of disaffected white, you know, not very well educated voters in rural areas. And so. But is that a Trump thing? Is that go away if you don't have Trump on the tickets? Because a lot of people are saying, well, maybe this is just a Trump thing. And once Trump is off the scene, that doesn't necessarily mean that Republicans have lost the suburbs or anything like that. Right, and right. and and I think that's an interesting question because of course whatever happens in 2020, you know, the the larger the larger struggle continues, right? And I think there are a lot of Republicans who are concerned and asking themselves that question is, you know, do I want to throw in my chips with what makes sense for Donald Trump, of course, and that that's a perfectly sound strategy for Donald Trump, but is the, is it a good strategy for the Republican party going forward? I think I think i hope more republicans do that strategy because we'll get more democrats elected. but i imagine that you guys are not terribly comfortable with the strategy that focuses on uh just really increasing turnout with uh with rural voters at the expense of especially suburban voters is that right
2: oh this is the problem with the three three person thing yeah exactly for a will to answer. um for for me no um i I think you can do both, and um, the other the other sort of gloss that I would put on this is, um, I think you're right. The the loss in suburban uh, affluent voters may be uh, more a Trump thing than a Republican thing, um, but also when you're looking at the candidates at the state level um, in, in Kentucky and in uh, Mississippi, I, neither neither one of the Democrat candidates um, uh, in those. Uh, yeah, I think you used that correctly. Um, in those races, we're out. We're touting a, you know, wholesale revamp of the economy, Medicare yeah. for yeah. all, uh, Green New Deal sort of thing, like like you may have a nominee doing um, in uh, in 2020. And I, I think a lot of these suburban voters who are are put off by just the uh, the Trump persona and the tweets and and you know the nonsense that sort of thing. Uh, if if push comes to shove, of well, do we, you want uh, a jackass or, or a socialist? I mean, they, they might stick with jackass. So, hey,
1: yeah. i that's... Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Will.
2: Sorry. I didn't so mean to. The interrupt.
1: thing I'd say is when it comes down to that, the rural voter turnout, I think the way you phrase that, Mike, is, is so spot on on the question being can Trump up those numbers enough to make up for population changes, redrawn maps, all of those fun things? Um, and that's to me where it ties back to the story we spent the first 30 minutes talking to. Um, Everything Democrats do related to this impeachment inquiry raised the opportunity for rural white farmer who is disengaged at this moment to decide, I'm sick and tired of Democrats going after the guy I voted for or supported or would have supported. Um, So that's where I think this has to become part of that conversation. Um, And that's one of those things that we're not going to be able to predict. Um, We're not going to be able to tell who's going to show up or not show up. Yeah.
0: You know, one th- I know, I know, guys, we got to move on, but I have to say one more thing to kind of get a make a personal uh, <laughs> a recommendation exactly. But, you know, it occurred to me after the Kentucky election that uh, if Kentucky had used rank choice voting, Matt Devin would be governor uh, because there were. Like are over 28,000 votes. Or there, was, yeah. a, uh, yep. there was a libertarian. Libertarian, yeah. yeah. Over 28,000 votes for him. Bevin lost by around 5,000. And most of those libertarian votes would have gone for, for Bevin in a ranked choice thing where Bevin would have been their second choice. Boom. He, you know, Maine's, Maine's doing it now for congressional elections. And uh, there's actually uh, a number of states that have uh, legislation about that. In fact, there was a bill in Congress introduced at the end of September uh, called the Ranked Choice Voting Act act to make it a national requirement and I am. I'm a big fan of ranked choice voting. Jay, I know you don't like it but, and will. You and I are actually going to be going back and forth on that because it's one of the chapters in our in our book. And I am I just I wanted to throw it in there because, as you guys know, I love ranked choice voting. I think it leads to better, more Democrat, small D Democratic uh, uh, results. And in this case, it would have led to a more large R Republican uh, result. But anyway, I wanted to throw that in. And and I I
1: just like, Mike, that you just led for a path to Bevin to still be governor.
0: You know, I, it works both ways. That's my point is that it helps better to reflect the will of the people. And I think that probably you can make a case that in Kentucky, a majority of a majority of the voting public would have preferred Matt Devin to Andy Bashir. And because we don't have ranked choice voting in Kentucky, that will of the majority of the voting public has been thwarted. And I think regardless of whether you're a, a, a liberal, you know, a Democrat or Republican, that should be a concern to you, which is why ranked choice voting is awesome anyway what, um, what happens
2: what happens when you have undervotes? Will you can take that up in the book yeah exactly yeah, yeah there's exactly. a whole lot of other issues yeah. but, but yeah. <laughs> yeah
0: hey but but you know before we get to the next story i wanted to just take a minute to thank our newest supporters or there's actually one an old supporter i don't know if he's old but someone's been with us for a while who recently doubled his monthly support for the no show way. doubled yeah noah awesome. thank you so much, and I believe no, I think I I owe you a coffee mug and uh, or a tote bag, so you know uh, let me know if you'd like that and I'll get that out to you. And also we have another new supporter this week who asked to rem- remain anonymous, an anonymous donor. Him. But
1: <laughs> it's Not a whistleblower, is it, I, Jay, I would have
0: been so disappointed if you hadn't said that. I kind of just <laughs> anyway. Um, but anyway, you know who you are, even if no one else does. I do too. Uh, uh, but we will not reveal your name, unlike any whistleblowers. But I wanted to say thanks again, and of course. When you become a monthly sustaining supporter through Patreon, you know you get the little show, the shout out, but also there's our weekly bonus show, the quick take, uh, coffee mug, tote bags, all kinds of stuff. And to check it all out, just go to Patreon.com/politicsguys, or you can go to PoliticsGuys.com/support. All right. So, well, we have one more story, don't we? Yeah,
1: we have one more story, and you know it's kind of the, the perfect trifecta today. We talked about the impeachment, we talked about Tuesday results, and now we'll talk about everybody trying to beat Trump. Um, so I think really a couple of focal points from, from this week and from the last few weeks, starting with obviously Elizabeth Warren. Um, and Elizabeth Warren, Medicare for All, really um, doubling down on her stance there, coming out with a plan that explains um, details of how it would be paid for, eliminating the insurance company profits, administrative fees, having the rest of the cost paid for on um having large companies pay to the government what they normally pay for premiums anyways, and then putting a surcharge on um really high income individuals in the United States. And to be honest, I mean she's come out on the offensive with this. She's called out Joe Biden, uh Mayor Pete. She's called out um Amy Klobaker who've kind of fought against her and saying that she had no real real ultimate plan. So we have Elizabeth Warren sitting on one end. Then we obviously have Michael Bloomberg saying that he's he's going to run. Um, And again, with Bloomberg, it's really interesting. Obviously, with his uh, run getting traction now on social media, uh, Zignal Labs, who I tend to look at for some social media analytics, actually says that 62% of the conversation about his presidential bid um, is actually negative right now. Um, And then the other issue that comes with it really is the fact that from the Democratic angle, and Mike, obviously, I'll be curious for your take on this, uh, this is an almost 80-year-old guy. Um, who is white as can be, who supported stop and frisk policies and has a history of just the Me Too movement um, all over. So it'll be interesting to see what he means despite the money he has. And then lastly, I think we have to point to the fact that the battleground state polls that came out this week um, did not suggest that Donald Trump is losing uh, in a way that would be a, a clear case for Democrats. I mean, if you look at Trump versus Biden... Um, and you look at Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Florida, Arizona, and North Carolina uh, Biden's winning in four out of the six, but by no more than five points. Bernie Sanders is beating Trump by uh, one or two points in three states, and then against Elizabeth Warren, there's two states that are even with Elizabeth Warren winning Arizona by two. So this is not something where, despite some on the left and some pundits saying that you know Trump's gonna lose by ten points, the polls today uh, aren't suggesting that that's necessarily the case so Mike, I gave you three options, which track do you want to head (laughs) down?
0: Well, I guess I'll start with Warren, uh, because that seems to me to be, well, I don't know, necessarily bigger. But it, it seems to me, you know, Warren released this Medicare for all financing thing because even I mean, she knows it doesn't stand a chance. This is a political document. And I think this is a case of Elizabeth Warren positioning herself as kind of the wonkier version of Bernie Sanders with a plan for everything basically forced her hand, but it also, I think, paints her into a corner. You know, there's a reason candidates keep campaign proposals vague, especially in primaries. So they can't be completely ripped apart, which Warren's plan is being Done to buy her own party. You know, Larry Summers looked at it and said, "This is just crazy math." A, a whole bunch of other, you know, prominent Democrats have just said, "This is just, this is just nuts." Essentially, and that's 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 handing obviously someone like Donald Trump or Republicans just a great material to use should she be the nominee. So that I think is obviously part of the reason why Michael Bloomberg entered the race, not just Joe Biden being weak, but the, the, the prospect of Elizabeth Warren potentially being a, a weak uh, general election a candidate. And those polls, I think, would, you know, even though, hey, it's one poll a year out, and I think there's a lot of issues with that, but still, it's cause for concern. Democrats shouldn't should, just shouldn't look at the national polls and say, oh, we're fine, because, of course, that's not how presidential elections work. Now, I did want to say, because, you know, we don't, we, we've, Talked not as much about policy as you know I'd like, obviously. I think as all of us would like, but that's just the nature of camp of campaign season, I guess. But what kind of bugs me about the whole Medicare for All debate essentially is I hate the way my party's framing it. I I I really do. Um, I think it's being framed in exactly the sort of way that gets a lot of support from Democratic activists and progressives, but is destined to fail in a in a larger audience and to fail abysmally i mean if i were if i were in charge of messaging i guess i'd pitch it this way general motors says that healthcare costs for employees just healthcare costs for their employees add somewhere around 1500 to the price of every single vehicle now no non us automaker has to take on those costs because their governments take care of it and so my pitch would be isn't it time that we stop fighting with one hand tied behind our backs and support our great American companies as much, if not more than foreign governments support theirs. And OK, that can be picked apart, too. But at least it's more of a I think it's more of a centrist kind of pitch that maybe might get somewhere. And so I really feel like my party sometimes is shooting itself in the foot by by pr- you know, proposing policies that I like, but not try to not framing them in the right way. And I think that's a lot better frame. So, kind of more of an opportunity and growth frame rather than sort of a fairness frame, I guess.
2: Yeah, but that's not what—that's not what is selling these days, and and, and although I mean I I think I mean at least not in the the primary uh, among Democratic activists. Sure. Yeah. Activists. Absolutely. Um. Yeah, I, w- I was g- I was going to say uh, Larry Summers uh, said the math looks like a woman did it. Um, Ooh, j- oh, just ki- I'm oh, kidding! Oh, I'm God. kidding! Ouch. I'm kidding, Larry. No, no, wait, I'm no, kidding.
0: no. We around. should put that. Hold on, we should put that in
2: context because <laughs> Summers <laughs> well, was, was so president of Harvard. Exactly. Yeah.
0: Yeah, when Summers was president of Harvard, he got into a uh, uh, hot water and ended up not being president of Harvard because of some comments he made about women and and, and the yeah, sciences and not potential fitness and that kind of thing. So that's that wasn't Jay being being sexist. That was Jay making comment on something Summer said.
2: talking about what uh, Larry uh, said or didn't say, which which, again, I think he was railroaded back then. But um, setting that aside, something that, you know, has come out about Obamacare right over the past couple of years is that, hey, it looks like it's it's more popular than it, it used to be. And it's also very popular about uh, among people who don't have it. And I think there's something there that a lot of people like the idea of there being the safety net, right? That, oh, if something happens, uh, I know this, that this is there. Oh, I know I can get pre-existing conditions covered. Oh, my kids could could stay on my insurance. Um and I think that's maybe where where the the Democrat base is, or where where America tends to be. Right? They're happy with their own insurance. They think, okay, mine mine's doing fine. My employer, I like I like my insurance. Um, I'm concerned if something should happen to me, either employment wise or you know catastrophic health wise, would I would I be okay? Uh, and they want that safety net, but but they don't. They aren't necessarily looking for a a remake of the U.S. economy. Um, and uh, I think that's what what uh, Elizabeth Warren and yeah. Sanders are proposing, yeah, and, and they think it sounds great. But, yeah, most yeah. people aren't looking for that.
0: Yeah, I, I I agree absolutely with that. And I think too much. It's framed on both sides and kind of an all or nothing sort of thing by extremists on both ends. And I guess that's why uh, why all all of us are more or less centrist, because we, we don't we don't sort of buy into that. Logic that uh, we need to, you know, remake the entire economy. I get a lot of hits, obviously, from the progressive wing of my party. I hear a lot from progressive listeners, but and you know, that's maybe my Berkey inside coming out. But I get very uncomfortable with massive remakes of the uh, of the economy. Which is not to say that I'm not for a more robust uh, social safety net. I absolutely am. And my point for that is that I think it not only is kind of meets those uh, equality and fairness and social justice things, and that's important to me. But also, I think you can make a good case that it also can be an engine of economic growth and opportunity because, you know, Jay, as kind of you alluded, if people have at least that a bit of a kind of cushion underneath them, then they're going to be more likely to do things and, and, and try things and be entrepreneurs and take risks. Yes. And yeah. we want to encourage that. And that to me seems to be the sort of bipartisan centrist message that can really resonate with people. And unfortunately I don't hear it from enough folks,
1: but let's talk about the, the left-wing progressive part of your party. Mike,
0: uh, I, we I'm
1: going to use the poll results. <laughs> Use those poll results to look at it, and we hear from progressives all the time that, you know, all Democrats want progressives, and there's this great, you know, untapped American potential here. And then you look at the battleground polls, and Joe Biden beats Trump in four out of the six states, Bernie in three, Elizabeth Warren in one. Um, I just don't honestly believe—I think there are a lot of Americans who might like a few progressive ideas, um, and they're typically— handpicking which ones those are. It's not an across the board. We want to be ultra-progressive in every area. But at the end of the day, I think we are seeing some of that centrist messaging playing a role, especially in the battleground states where Joe Biden is out polling yeah, Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren, yeah. especially against Donald Trump.
0: Yeah. No, that, that that's actually, that that's a good point. I, I hadn't really thought about that. But yeah, because there is a lot of pushback and certainly obviously part of that is people like Buttigieg and Biden trying to occupy that sort of middle lane, basically. So part of its campaign strategy, but also Joe Biden is kind of a centrist guy. Now, for someone like Buttigieg, I think it's more of a strategy. He's a little more left than he's sort of at least he started out a little more left and he's kind of, Conveniently, strategically tacked to center left, and I, can, I get that certainly. But, but yeah, I guess you're right. There is a little bit more of it than uh, than I initially uh, suggested. Yeah. The,
2: the other the other thing uh, going to Will's point on on polls is uh, I, I saw one the other day talking about like uh, approval for uh, Medicare for all. And the sense of okay, uh, how many like this idea in theory? Yes. Well, it's it's fairly high, but there's a tremendous drop off when the second question is answered. Of you, do you understand? You'd have to give up your private insurance. Yeah. I mean, that's whoa. Wait a minute.
0: Okay. Uh (laughs) You know yeah, because as you pointed out, Jay, most people who have insurance and like half people have insurance through their employers and then a bunch of people have it through obviously older folks, social, uh, Medicaid. Most of those people are relatively happy with what they have. And so trying to and that's that's a big issue for the Warren plan. Any plan that would remake this is how do you manage the transition? And that's a. that's even a tougher question, I think, than sort of long term benefits and financing, because that transition period is just going to be a bear. And so no one has a good answer to that, at least as, as far as I'm concerned to this point. But, you know, as to I, I know we're running a, a little bit late, but I wanted to mention the Bloomberg thing as well, because, you know, what occurred to me, if Mike Bloomberg wins the nomination, Basically, we will not basically we would have two septuagenarian white male New York billionaires uh, <laughs> competing Both for with the histories presidency. of questionable
1: <laughs> actions with women.
0: You know, yeah, I mean, my and then I look at the field, you know, Bloomberg, 77, Trump, 73, Biden, 76, Sanders is 78, Warren is 70. I'm like. My God! Yeah, at some point, right, guys, we're going to get to the post-boomer age in politics. It's got to happen eventually. Uh, but, but, and I can I can understand, you know, I, I, in our Facebook group this week, someone was talking about boomer splaining and the boomers, and I, after a while, it does tend to it does tend to grate, I think, uh, a little bit. But, but obviously. Trump and aside from being billionaires there are some pretty important differences between Trump and Bloomberg for instance for one thing Bloomberg is a whole lot richer than Donald Trump uh, you know <laughs> look Trump is a baby billionaire Trump is a real billionaire right i mean and, and of course Trump is you know calling Bloomberg little mike Bloomberg's only 58 Trump is 63 so i guess that's going to be the uh, the moniker for him but and we talked a little bit about just earlier about you know, Bloomberg being a a Democrat. He's not really he's he's really about as centrist as you get. Right. Because he was a Democrat. Then he became a Republican and ran for mayor in New York City. And uh, then he became an independent and then he became a Democrat. And now he's donated, you know, over one hundred million dollars to Democratic causes. And kind of a neat thing about Bloomberg's potential presidential campaign is because he's uh, the 15th richest person in the world. He basically, he he has said he would self-finance his presidential campaign, which would mean that under current debate rules, he would not qualify for any of the presidential debates because they're based on campaign contributions.
1: But well, that's OK, Mike, because the left says Donald Trump just talks to himself anyway.
0: <laughs> but I mean, even for the primaries, that would be, you know, that would be an issue. And uh, but certainly in the funding uh, just a couple years ago, I think Mike Bloomberg donated one point six billion dollars to Johns Hopkins, his alma mater. And there would be no problem with him throwing billion on a billion dollars on a political campaign. And that would be about what it would take, I would imagine. So but I don't see him well, I think getting it would be more like 20 billion. No, no, not at all. Because if you look back at uh, 2012, overall fundraising for both sides was around $1 billion on each side. In 2016, it was actually a little bit less than that. So no, a billion dollars is all you need. So no,
2: Well, maybe, I was, maybe I'm looking at overall spending. Now, you might be without, looking at overall without, spending in I all thought, elections. Thought, yeah.
0: but no, for the presidency, it's around a billion dollars. Right. So uh, that would be. Bloomberg could toss that off with no problem, you know. But I don't really see this as being that big of a deal because I agree with Mike Bloomberg of the Mike Bloomberg of March saying I don't see how I get through the Democratic primaries, and I still don't see how he gets through the Democratic primaries. In fact, I think this could actually give him, and with the result, that's his least favorite result, and a lot of senators' least favorite results is it, it hurts. Uh, it hurts Biden. And Buttigieg just enough, and maybe Klobuchar, who's not really a, a thing at this point yet polling wise, but it hurts them just enough to give a little bit more of a boost in delegates to uh or it splits the dog it's get more a little bit more a boost to sanders and particularly warren and we end up with i think potentially a greater likelihood of uh, warren being the nominee so if you're a progressive i think you would like bloomberg getting into the race but if you are a centrist i don't know if this is uh, particularly good news at least that's my take
2: for it.
1: yeah and i agree with that i think if you know if i'm sitting there i look at biden and i'm like this is the guy that you have Biden supporters. But at the same time, when I think about it, some of the biggest concerns about Joe Biden, I feel like are still issues for Michael Bloomberg. Um, if you have female voters that are looking at Biden and saying, <laughs> you know, we don't like some of the allegations and some of the behaviors, Michael Bloomberg is not going to make them feel any better about those. Yeah, nope, that, but
2: his kid, his kid didn't work for Burisma. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that we what know I of thinking. yet. Yeah, we know. I mean, that's quite honestly more because uh, it's it's almost as if Biden sort of, you know, uh, by his candidacy is going to step in and, and you know, it's sort of like you can't have uh, the impeachment inquiry and have Biden as your nominee, I think, is the problem. You can have one or the other. Um, and Bloomberg certainly has problems. Say, yeah, and I yeah. I would I would tend to agree that uh, he's not going to fare well in the, uh, the Democratic primary, especially as a late entrant at this point and somebody without any real machinery in the, in the democratic uh, party, yeah, uh, which I think is, is so important in a, in a primary uh, and it's, it's much different than running for mayor of New York.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we Jay, you and I I think talked about that in relation to uh, Hillary Clinton thinking about, and now, you know, deciding it looks like not to enter the race because even if you have a lot of money, getting the people and getting the infrastructure built up out of nothing that's that's you can throw as much money as you want at it but if the if the best people are taken i mean yeah. there's only so much you can do it, you you can't you can't create time basically and so even with all this money i just don't think that this is a candidacy that's uh, that's going anywhere so but we we will see god knows i've been wrong about <laughs> about other nominees so we'll, we'll see uh, on that but uh Hey guys, I know we're running a little long. Before we close, I wanted to mention once again that we have that politics guys host survey, and we will put the link up on the on the website. We would really appreciate it if you filled it. out. It only takes like a minute or so, basically. And again, you can comment if you want. And also, if you're doing that, you might want to comment and let us know what you think about this three-person format. I don't know how you guys feel. I actually really kind of like this. I think it's a lot of fun. Yeah, I do too. Yeah. So, and and listeners, if you guys like it, it's a little more of a technological hurdle for us, but nothing we can't handle. And if if it's what you want, we want to hear about it. So please do that again. The links on the show notes. But as soon as we're we're done with this, we're also going to be doing a three person bonus show. And uh, what, what are we what are we talking about this week, Will? Um, what what we're reading? What we're reading. Yeah, we have all kinds of interesting stuff that we are reading. I know. And so. Also, uh, Trey has a uh, quick take for people at the $5 a month supporter level and above. And if you're a supporter, that'll be in your app by the, by your podcast app by the time you hear this. If you're not a supporter, you can just go to patreon.com slash politicsguys or politicsguys.com slash support. And if you want to get in touch with us for any reason, you can at mail at politicsguys.com. There's our Facebook page, which has just been Really interesting, I think, in the last week or two. That's facebook.com/slash politicsguys. And we're also on Twitter at politicsguys. And hey, if you haven't subscribed to the show yet, that would really help us out. We would appreciate it greatly if you did that. And if you could spread the word by, you know, talking about the show to folks and uh, liking us and leaving positive reviews, that would be helpful as well. The executive producers of the politics guys are Bruce Johnson, Will Moreno, Andre Masker, and Daniel Toe. Today's show is produced by Will Miller. We'll be back with a new show on Wednesday. We hope you'll join us.